Amen, amen. Hey, this morning we are going to be in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. You want to begin to make your way there. 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, we're going to look at 8 through 10, but we're going to read all the way from 5 to 10 as we look at the second half of what we started that, uh, last week. If you don't have a Bible, don't own one, you can find one in the back of the pew in front of you. We love for that to be a gift from us to you. If you're not familiar with how to use that, you can find a table of contents at the front. That's going to let you know where to locate the book of 2 Thessalonians. And then as we make our way through today, just know that the large numbers are chapters and uh, the small numbers are verses. Let's, uh, let's go ahead and read 5 through 10 and then we will pray once again. Paul writes and says, This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might, when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. Would you pray with me? God, as we come into this uh, passage, uh, really a conclusion to the thought Paul began the week uh, a week ago for us in our study, we recognize that that a lot of what he's dealing with is the eternal state of those who do not come to know Jesus in saving faith. So God, uh, our hearts are a variety of places before you on this subject. Some of us have been so incredibly hurt by others that there is something inside of us that longs to see punishment and justice met out for all eternity. Others of us, we come into this place we have loved ones, uh, brothers, sisters, fathers, wives, husbands, friends. That if nothing else changes in their life, this is where they're going. And so we're absolutely broken. We're terrified. We're devastated. And so God, I pray that your spirit would speak to both. That you would offer comfort. You would call the one to entrust themselves to you in the extension of the gospel. And God, I pray for the softening of the heart of the other. This morning, we need your Holy Spirit in this place to move in our hearts, to stir up in us that which is lovely, to put away that which is fleshly. We need you to bind all distractions from us. And so God, we ask you to do work in our hearts in this place at this time. God, our heart is to see revival come to Greenville, Texas, and in Hunt County. And so we want to pray for the other churches of our community. God, I pray for the encouragement of their pastors this morning as they're tired, as they're frustrated, as they're dealing with hurt. God, that you would be speaking through them, that you would encourage their people, that you would encourage them. God, we pray for strong churches. We pray for their health, for their vitality. God, our heart is to be on mission with you for the lost, and that through the collective body of Christ here in this community and beyond. 
And so, God, we want to pray for them and the partnership we have with them. God, would you guide us in wisdom today? Would you direct us in the study of your word and by your spirit, would you bring application to our lives and our hearts? We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So as we come into this passage, recognize that what Paul is addressing and what he's getting at, I mean, it really does kind of hit us in a variety of places. And so depending on kind of how you've been brought up and and what your experiences have been, you come into this understanding of the plight of the lost person. Like the end of what will happen to those who die without coming to know Jesus. And some of us, uh, if you've been raised in more of a fundamentalist understanding and there's kind of the hard-nosed understanding and the lion's share of preaching for you as a kid was hellfire and brimstone, you're like, yes, light them up, right? And then there are others of you and you're just thinking like, can this really be the heart of God? Can this really be what it's like for him? And you're having a hard time understanding. So I want to start us in kind of an odd place coming into this. And so if you'll begin to make your way to Luke 15, we're going to look at just two short little teachings that Jesus gives us. And I want that to be the framework from where we understand what Paul is saying here. Because he's one in the same God, he has one in the same heart, and my fear is we'll miss his heart if we just look at this passage and look at it in isolation. So Luke 15, Jesus is teaching and there are scribes or Pharisees, there are these religious zealots there. But look as well, he says, now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him. Now, what do we know about tax collectors and sinners? They knew everybody hated them, nobody wanted to be near them, and he's the only one who had the answers for them. It says, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And so he gives these parables, he gives these two teachings, in essence, to communicate to the heart of the Pharisees and the scribes who saw no value, who saw no purpose, who saw the tax collectors and the sinners as being unclean and unworthy to come near Jesus. So he starts and he says, what man of you, he asked this question, having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after one that is lost until he founds it. Now the anticipation when he asked that question is that everybody there would say, oh, I'd do that. I'd do that. There's nobody there that the expectation from Jesus, he says, which man among you having the 99 who loses the one would leave the 99 and go after the one? There's no expectation in Jesus' mind that they say, I don't know, like, how valuable is that one? Like, what does he look like? Is he short? Is he stumpy? Does he have, like, sheep pattern baldness? Like, what does he look like? The expectation is they say, absolutely, we leave the 99, we go after the one. We leave the 99, we go after the one. Jesus says, and when he is found, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. And just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. This is the heart of God. Do you see this? Like we gather here in this place and in our minds are those who aren't here this morning. They're nursing a hangover. They're not here this morning. Their heart is far from God. They're not here this morning. They hate all things to do with the church. And our heart, in some sense, for some of us, says, let them be gone. That's not the heart of God. 
That God's heart's preoccupied with this one who is wayward, this one who is distant, this one who is remote. He leaves us here in this place, and he goes to seek the one who wants nothing to do with him. And this is the scene in heaven. That when he finds that one, and he brings that one back, and that one comes into repentance, and comes into faith, all of heaven erupts in a party. There's not doubting, there's not saying, I wonder if he's for real, I wonder if he's genuine, I wonder if he'll be backslidden, I wonder if he'll give up alcohol, I wonder if he'll give up drugs, I wonder if he'll give up pursuing this lifestyle. All of heaven is only concerned with rejoicing because the one who has lost has now been found. And they say, hallelujah. She says, you get that. He says, let me tell you about this woman. Okay, so this woman has a coin collection. She has 10 silver coins. And she loses one coin, and we know that from study that this will make the whole collection worthless. She loses just one of the ten. The rest of the collection is worthless. She says, does she not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And I was saying, of course, of course, that's, like, that's what she engages in. That's, that's what she does. And so the picture there in our minds is this woman in this poorly lit house who takes a lamp, who's on hands and feet, just sweeping around, looking at all the nooks and all the crannies of where this coin might have gone. She's finding Legos, right? She doesn't need to be on uh, hands and feet. She can find those just walking plainly. But she's, she's finding Legos. She's finding lint. She's finding dust bunnies. She's finding the passport she misplaced. And then and she's looking, and then what, what does she see in the side of there? She reaches down, and she brings the lamp close, and she pulls out, and it's the coin. And suddenly, there's worth and value to the entirety of her collection. Suddenly, she is so incredibly overcome with joy. So what does she do in the middle of this? That's when she has found it. She calls together her friends and neighbors and saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that was lost. And just so I tell you, there is more joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. What he says is when a lost person comes to faith, all of heaven loses its collective mind. Like in some sense, they're from southern Louisiana, so every time that happens, they just say, Hey, 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 Right? Let's let the good times roll. And so they're just so incredibly ecstatic, so incredibly overwhelmed at this. Y'all, this is the heart of God. Do we think in some sense the angels are like, look, I know the big guy's going to be really happy, but I got, I got the pinata, I got like the confetti, I'm ready for Jordan to come to faith. And they pop it and they're looking at God like, is he cool with this? Like God is right there. He is ecstatic. He is overwhelmed. It is his heart that that which is lost is found. It is his heart that lost people come to know and follow Jesus. Amen? Now listen, some of you in here, like where you are today is that you are not lost. You would say that your heart is to love and to follow Jesus, but there are certain parts of you, certain aspects of you and of your heart and of your life that are wayward. And so there's a part of you that's wondering, like, what does God want of me? The person who is saved but is struggling with faith. The person who is saved, who follows Jesus, but who struggles and finds themselves going backwards. K.J. Ramsey had this to say in her book, The Lord is My Courage. She says, God is like the shepherd and God is like the woman. 
God leaves behind the 99 pretty and perfect seeming parts of you to find and restore the one part of you that feels too broken and lost. Do you hear that? Since there is no part of you that the good shepherd will not seek and follow to extend goodness and love. There is no distance you can go that is beyond God's willingness to search. There is no road too rocky, no trail too long for God to travel, to pursue, to gather up the hurting parts of you. There's no part of you that is too broken, too angry, too anxious, too judgmental, too traumatized, or too lifeless for God to seek. You see, because God's very heart is to seek and save the lost. You may not find yourself today being lost, but you have some sense in your heart of what it is to experience lostness. What it is to wonder if this certain part of you God wants anything to do with. Can I tell you today that our God excels at seeking and saving the lost and his seeking of you and his saving of you extends over the entirety of your life. Are you willing to be sought? Are you willing to persist in being saved by him? I think it takes something of courage. This comes from Ramsey. It takes something of courage for us, the sheep, to delight in being sought after, to delight in being found, to have some sense of our worthiness in Christ that we would allow him to find us and to see ourselves as worthy of being saved by him. That is the heart of God. That is the heart of God in Luke 15. That is the heart of the God in this passage as we spend the remainder of our time here in 2 Thessalonians. Paul speaking of Jesus, you'll remember there at the end of chapter, uh, chapter 1 and verse 7 and moving into 8, the versification is somewhat uh, difficult. But he says Jesus is coming and his might is displayed in his angels and he's got this flaming fire. And so we looked at Revelation chapter 1 where Jesus has eyes of fire. And what is he doing? He says he is inflicting vengeance. He is bringing retribution. He is paying out, doling out vengeance on all those. And he says it's on people who do two things. Those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Now there are a couple of different ways you can look at this. One is to say Paul is talking about two different groups of people. So those who don't know God, there are those that say, well, that, he's talking about the Gentiles. And those who don't obey God, he's talking about the Jews. But it makes more sense grammatically, it makes more sense within the context of this passage to think that Paul isn't talking about a split between Jews and Gentiles, but he's talking about one in the same problem. He's talking about one in the same problem, this idea that God is bringing his vengeance, he is bringing retribution, he is bringing payment for all those things that we have stored up over the entirety of a lifetime, for the wages of sin is, the wages of sin is death. This is what our payment is apart from Jesus. So he's inflicting vengeance upon all those who in the middle of not knowing God can't obey God. Now Paul speaks of it this way in Romans 1. He speaks of it this way in Romans 1, verses 18 through 20. He says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. 
His his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Essentially, Paul's making the argument there in Romans 1 that all of creation testifies to God's reality. And so to disbelieve in God takes an active act of the will on a person to say, there is nothing greater than me. There is nothing greater than my existence. There's nothing greater than what I see. There's nothing beyond this. There must not be a God who is in any way ultimately responsible for any of these things. So Paul says the people who receive the active vengeance of the Lord are guilty of two things. They uh, disobey and they don't know. They disobey and they don't know. When I was in uh, high school, I had this most amazing vehicle known to man. It was my first car. It was a 1988 Jeep Wrangler. Hard top, four-wheel drive. I mean, she was all kinds of impressive. She'd pass everything on the road but a stop sign. It was a carburetor issue. And so I, uh, I got the Jeep, and my dad ran over a variety of rules. I was 15 at the time. And I remember... I'm living in southern Louisiana, so the only thing you want to do with a four-wheel drive is get it muddy, right? You want to get it muddy. There's no big rocks to climb in southern Louisiana. There's swampland, y'all. Like, it's the only thing there is to do. And so I called my buddy, and he said, he said hey, man, there's your big old mud puddle over by my house. He's, he's Cajun, and so I'll translate. There's a big mud puddle over by my house. Would you like to come over? And so I go over, and we're just, man, we had it in four high. We're spinning around. We're throwing big rooster tails. It was awesome. Well, I know this is not going to delight my father. And so what do I do? I take it by the car wash. Scrub, scrub, scrub. And I'm, I'm just making her shine, y'all. She deserves to be beautiful. She's a pretty lady. And so I get her cleaned up. I drive her to the house. I park it in the carport. My dad gets home from work, and he said, uh, want to talk about what you did today? I was like, you know, went to school, hung out, went to Mike's house. He's like, what'd you do with the Jeep? I was like, you know, drove it to Mike's house. He's like, what'd you do at Mike's house? I was like, you know, just drove around a little bit. He's like, in mud? I said, there may have been a little dirt involved. He said, do you remember what I told you when you got that Jeep? The sentence is, do you know? And I was like, don't take it muddy. He's like, yeah, I told you not to take it muddy. And do you know what I told you would happen if you took it mudding? I said, did I lose the Jeep? He said, that's right. Do you not know? Do you not obey? Now, how did he know? I have no idea. I'm pretty sure my friend ratted on me. Jealousy, probably. (laughs) We come into the middle of this, and he says, man, there are those who do not know God. There are people in our community who've never heard of Jesus. This may blow your mind. You may not believe this. You may think that when you're born in Greenville, Texas, you automatically, on your birth certificate, is a little addendum that behind it, when you start turning four and five and six, your parents are like, oh, look at this. On the back of it, it says, uh, you know, admit, believe, confess. No such thing exists. We had a benevolence case a number of years ago, and I'm sharing the gospel with this woman who's in her mid-20s. She had never heard any of these things. She said, nobody's ever told me this. Is this commonly known? There are lost people in our community. Scarier than that, harder than that, there are people in our community who believe they're saved but don't know anything of Jesus. It's not that they don't know him, they've never heard of him, but knowing something of him, they refuse to obey the gospel. Now, what does that look like? Refusing to obey the gospel 
is not living immorally. Let's just be really clear on that. Refusing to obey the gospel is not engaging in homosexuality or transgenderism or voting Democrat or whatever you want to say. Refusing to obey the gospel is none of those things. It's never one of the things that you would say, here's my list of things that I cannot do. It's none of that. Refusing to obey the gospel is refusing in some sense to say, I am sinful and I'm desperately in need of salvation in Jesus. That's what it is to disobey the gospel. Can we be clear on that? We don't want to lead people into morality. We don't want to lead people into being better versions of lost people. We don't want to create a society of really good people all destined for hell. In my fear, in, 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 in failing to be really clear on what the gospel is and what the gospel is not, is that we're setting people up to believe it's okay and it's good enough to be good enough. He says they don't know who he is and they don't obey the gospel. And this is what they receive. Paul writes, sadly, he says, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Do you know something of what it is to be in pain? You've, you've had a child without medication. You've broken your femur. You know something of what it is to endure pain, anguish, suffering, mental anguish. You've lost your wife. You've lost your child. You struggle with depression. You wonder, can things ever be good again? But still, in all those experiences, there's something inside of us that begins to say there's something to treat the malady I'm experiencing. You're in a lot of pain. There's some type of painkiller. You're, you're, you're struggling mentally. I can go to counseling. You struggle with loss. Time begins to address it. And as you deal with your sorrow, it does eventually get easy. And that's our experience over the course of our life, Right? We go through difficult things, we go through pain and hardship, those things get easier over the duration of our lives. And so it's impossible in some sense for us to accurately assess what Paul is saying here. Look at what he says. He says they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, always being destroyed, never being finished. Always being torn down. Never being eliminated. Got to be honest, like in some sense, there's a Christian view in theology referred to as annihilationism. And essentially, it argues that there comes a point at which humanity just ceases to exist. Like they just don't exist anymore, they're gone. But Paul tells us here they will suffer forever. Listen, if you're a believer and follower in Jesus Christ, what does that do to you in your heart when you hear there are those who will suffer eternally? It should break you. It should drive at a sense of urgency in your heart, and it should redouble your efforts to the extension, the expansion of the gospel. They will suffer forever. And the locus of their suffering, look what he says, it is away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. How many things in life do we get second chances on? Like, I, don't, I don't know about you, but, and maybe this is how we've raised our kids, but anytime we punish our kids for something and they realize they're going to lose video games, they're going to lose television, they're going to lose some privilege, some benefit, all of a sudden contrition sets in really fast. 
It's like rebellion to contrition in 0.2 seconds. And in that moment, what they want is a second chance. Or you think about the husband begging for his family back. You think about uh, the wife begging for her husband back. You think about somebody who speeds and the officer pulls up and the question they ask stupidly is, is there anything I can do today to not get a ticket? And the response is, probably don't ask that question. We always want a second chance, and we believe in some sense that there will be a second chance. There is no second chance. At the end of this life, the decisions you make in this life have eternal consequence. So if in this life you believe and you follow Jesus Christ, then in the next life, you will spend forever in his presence. But listen to me, if in this life you don't know God, you don't obey the gospel, you reject the extension of the gospel, in the next life, he allows you to experience the absence of his presence and suffering for all eternity on the basis of your choice in this life. There's a weightiness to that. There's a part of of us, hopefully, in you that as you're hearing this, as you're reflecting on this, that if you don't know Jesus, you're understanding the severity of that decision. That if you don't know Jesus, you're understanding the severity of that decision in refusing to come into the knowledge of God, refusing to move in submission to the gospel. Paul writes in 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and he gives us this picture that Jesus is coming back, that his return is imminent. It could happen at any moment. We don't know when that moment will be. We need to be the people who are ready, and we need to be the people who are making those around us ready for the return of the Son. Now, Paul shifts away from this discussion of the end of the lost person, and he ends back to the discussion of those who know Jesus. He says, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all those who believed, because our testimony to you is believed. So what he writes first to the church there in Thessalonica is that when we communicated the gospel, y'all believed. Paul told them, he says, look, this is what happened. God created humanity, humanity rebelled, and God sent his son Jesus to restore humanity in a right relationship with God. Jesus came, he lived a perfectly sinless life, he died, he paid the penalty and the punishment for our sins, and he rose again, and he he calls all men to come and know him. He says, y'all believe that, because you believe that, this is what you're going to experience, that there will come a day when Jesus will return, and look at what he says, to be glorified in his saints, and to be marveled at among all those who believe. What we see over the course of Scripture is that the glory of God is brilliant and that it is hard to behold, it's hard to see. When Moses uh, was face to face with God, the afterglow of God's glory upon his face was too alarming for the people around him, so he had to wear a veil over his face. This is what he says of us, that when he comes back, his glory will be revealed in the church. 
He's going to come back, and what we are going to reflect, what we are going to display, what we are going to show is the glory of God. He will be glorified in his saints. And so we're going to be glorying him. We're going to be shining forth, his glory pouring out from us. And at the same time, we're going to be there, mouths agape, like this. Everybody do this. Not all of you. Some of your teeth are falling out. So we're going to be mouths agape, radiating his glory in this moment. All because of the decision we made in this life. All because of the, because of the graciousness of God to seek and save that which is lost. Now listen, if you're a parent in this place, all summer your kids have heard the gospel over and over and over again. If they come here on a weekly basis, they hear the gospel. They hear about sin and lostness and what it is to follow Jesus. If they went to camp with us, if they're in VBS with us, if they're in youth ministry with us, they hear the gospel over and over and over again. But it is one of our core convictions that it's one of the delights of a parent to be able to experience the joy of walking your children into faith and relationship with Jesus. And we don't want to take that from you. We don't want to come to you and say, little Johnny, little Susie, just prayed to receive Jesus today. We want you to be able to experience that. You know your child's heart better than we ever could. And you have the privilege and responsibility to do that with your children. But listen to me. If you're not having that conversation with your children, if you're not leading your children and calling them to response, then you're missing out on being able to engage your children with the gospel. And today we have two tools for you that I'm asking you to pick up today and to invest in the future of your child's life. Uh, we have two tools. Denise, these are out back. And so we have a, a gospel track for your kid and then a five questions to ask when your child professes faith. Do they need a Savior? Do they understand Jesus' death and resurrection? Do they believe they're saved through repentance and faith? Do they show the signs of a new life? Are their decisions coming from external pressure? See, we don't want them to feel the external pressure to make mom and dad happy, to make grandma happy. Uh, grandma happens to be in town. It would be great if you come to faith. She'll give you uh, $5 if you profess faith in Jesus. We don't, that want, we don't want that to be your kid's story when they turn 20. And they're thinking, is it even real? Does it even matter? Let us help walk with you in leading your child to faith. But make no mistake, God has placed you in your child's life to be an instrument for their salvation. Take up the encouragement to do this. Where are you at today? Are you one who today you say, listen, I don't actually know Jesus. Listen, friend, if you don't know Jesus, barring some change in your life, what God has prepared for you in Jesus, you will miss out on. And if you miss out on Jesus, if you don't know him, if you don't obey the gospel, what he tells us is that eternity for you will be an eternal suffering. Every day, every hour, being removed from the people you love. There's no communication with the people around you. There's no misery loves company. You will experience isolation and suffering forever. If you don't know Jesus, then today's the day for you to talk to somebody about how you can. I mean, we'd love to have a conversation with you, with one of our pastors or one of our elders or any one of the people in here with a name tag on. They would love to talk to you about what it looks like to know and to follow Jesus.
Maybe you're in here today, and what resonated with you is this understanding that there are parts of you that are far from God, and you're asking yourself the question of, does he really care? Will he really seek? Man, God's heart is for you. He loves you. He's in love with you. And he wants you to have an experience of that love each and every day over the course of your life. Would you join with me as we pray? Let us commit our hearts to the Lord and ask that he move in our midst. God, we want to pray for those who do not know you. God, that by your spirit you would call them to yourself. God, that today would be the day that they submit their lives to love and to follow Jesus. God, we ask for a special prayer on the behalf of those. There's some aspect of their life and who they are that they just feel incredibly far from you. That today they would experience what it is to be sought after and to be saved wholly by you. And God, in these next moments as we sing, God, some of us, we don't feel far from you. We know you. But God, we have people in our lives who don't. People in our lives who do not know you, and they're not concerned that they don't. So God, would you burden our hearts right now to cry out to you for them, to intercede to you on their behalf. We want to see them with us, living forever with you. Salvation in the name of Jesus. So God, lead us as we pray. Guide our hearts as we entrust ourselves to you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.